individually through the power of your word being read aloud. So just bless this morning in Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I don't have a PowerPoint, so if you're a PowerPoint fan, I'm very sorry. Uh, just uh, close your eyes and, and listen. And if your eyes are closed, I won't know who's sleeping. <laughs> Don't close your eyes. That's just a joke. Uh, <clears throat> a few years ago, well, who am I kidding? It's been a long time ago. I was a freshman in college. It was 1992, and, uh, and I got to go on spring break for the first time. And my, uh, my friends, I had met these three guys at Luther College where I was going to school, and, uh, and they wanted to go skiing. And, uh, and that was exciting to me because I hadn't been skiing since I was like 10. Uh, uh, so that meant uh, we were going to drive from Decorah, where Luther College is, to Denver. And that trip's probably like uh, 900 miles, maybe, maybe a little shy of that. Uh, it was a 13-hour drive. And on a drive that long, you, uh, you have to do something to kill the time. And so, and I don't, I don't know if girls do this when they're together, but guys definitely do this. You, you, you share stories and you spend the whole time trying to one-up the, the other guy. And, uh, and so we spent 13 hours talking. And I know some of you were thinking, Brent talked and no one else got a word in edgewise. <laughs> that was not true on this trip. I do acknowledge I have a tendency to talk a lot. I know when Bob has reached his Brent story threshold when we're in the office because he slowly backs away as he's listening and disappears into the bathroom. One of these days, I'm going to actually follow him to the bathroom, and I'm going to keep telling my stories through the door. <laughs> that won't be awkward. <clears throat> no, that's, now I'm just talking. Uh, point, 900-mile uh, trip, 13 hours, telling stories, uh, and, and I wasn't the biggest talker in the car. I, I, I wasn't the only talker. Uh, my friend Steve had a few stories of his own that he shared. And, uh, and mind you, we're going skiing. We're going on a ski trip. Steve uh, spent most of his stories telling us what an amazing skier he was. Uh, I'm, I, I don't remember the specifics, but what, what I'm left with is this impression or this memory of flips and tricks and speed through mogul-filled slopes that most of us would have wet our pants at the sight of. Uh, we were, we were uh, all of us, intimidated in the car by some of the things that we heard that day from Steve about his skiing skill because we're about to go skiing and this guy's going to make us look silly. Uh, but the other thing is, I, I know Steve, <laughs> and none of this made any sense to me. Uh, so I, I started to doubt uh, the veracity of Steve's stories about his skiing ability. Uh, and... Uh, and I figured, you know what, in a couple days we're going to know because <laughs> we're going to go skiing. And, uh, and so the day came, we went to Keystone, Colorado, and we were at Keystone Ski Resort. And we're sitting at a bench and we're, we're strapping into our boots and we're clicking into our skis and we're all getting up very gingerly and kind of pushing off onto the snow. And, and as I looked around, I realized like there are only three of us, including me. So uh, who's missing? It was Steve. So I turn around and I see Steve sitting on the bench behind me looking green, like he's going to vomit. And, uh, and I didn't know what to say. I felt bad for him, but I said, hey, Steve, come on, show us how it's done. That was the wrong thing to say. Uh, moment of truth had arrived and he knew it. And so he got up 
And he started to push off, and all of a sudden, he's like, oh, my knee, my, my ankle. And he went down. He just crumbled to the floor, and he lied on the ground, holding his ankle. And he's like, guys, I twisted my ankle. You guys, just go. Go skiing. I'll be fine. I'll stay in the ski lodge. It's, I'm, I'm okay. Have you ever put on ski boots? I don't know how you twist your ankle in a ski boot, but that's what he was going with. He twisted his ankle. So uh, Steve stays in the lodge, and, uh, and the rest of us went off, and we had this amazing day skiing. And it was a full day. I mean, we didn't cut it short. And we came back to the lodge, and Steve was still sitting there looking miserable. And we we're trying to, like, how was it? Did you have fun? Did you, you know, watch the movies? They had a movie? And he's, he's like, yeah, it was fine. I don't talk about it. So we get in the car, uh, and on the way out the car, oh, it's like this. And then uh, by the time we get to the car, it's a little bit less. By the time we got back to Denver, he was totally fine. So I don't know. Uh, and all the way back to Denver, uh, he spent asking us how the time was, and we told him about our falls and our crashes, and he made fun of us, and, and, uh, and then he continued to tell us what an amazing security he was. <laughs> so uh, what's the point? point of the story is, for Steve, he crafted this world in which he could live that was built on lies, okay? And when the potential for those lies to be exposed came, he, he created more lies to protect the lies, and, and he avoided the potential of his world that he created, where he was this incredible Olympic-level skier. Uh, rather than risk that ex- being exposed... He protected it by simply not facing the truth, not letting the light of truth expose his lies. And I want to say that I'm better than that, that I would never do that. But the truth is, I know that world intimately. I'm probably going to know it for the next few days because when Iowa loses, I don't watch TV, I don't listen to the radio, and I don't read the paper, because if I don't see anybody talking about the loss, then it's like it never happened. I can pretend that the loss never happened. Uh, no, just kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. I really do that. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, uh, sometimes we, we uh, just to protect our, the world that we live in, the world built on lies, and maybe we believe those lies, and we live according to those lies to protect that because it, 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 it satisfies our flesh, we just simply ignore the truth. We don't face the truth. So <clears throat> big idea, part one, in the absence of truth, lies flourish and sin reigns, okay? I want you to keep that in your minds. In the absence of truth, lies flourish and sin reigns, okay? Uh, This was the context into which um, Isaiah was called to be a prophet. Uh, If you read the book of Isaiah leading up to uh, Isaiah 6, which is what we're going to focus on today, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, so you can be looking that up, Isaiah 6, that's big 6, little 1, that's what I say to the kids, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, this, is, this would describe uh, the people of Judah, of which Isaiah was a part. And, uh, and, and the reason that, that God had become angry with Judah. So into this context, Judah was called to be a prophet, to take a message 
to the people of truth to expose their, their idolatry and their lies. So read with me Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, I worked a little bit out of the S, uh, ESV as well. The Bibles at your chairs are NASV. I don't know why I didn't just use that version, but um, I kind of like went through all of them because uh, they all have some really interesting and unique differences. Say the same thing but uh, have some different words that really capture some things. So Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet, and with two wings, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is God's word. His holy, inspired, God-breathed word. Completely true. This passage reveals an important truth about God and his word. And I think that we have to understand what Isaiah came to understand about God and his truth if we're to be transformed like Isaiah is transformed in this passage. Let's, let's go through and walk through the passage verse by verse. We're going to start with one, of course. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, or sitting upon a throne high and exalted, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 1 provides us with some contextual details as to when Isaiah received his call as a prophet. His call came in a vision of God. The vision happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, During King Uzziah's reign, Judah had grown to become a powerful commercial uh, and military state. And they had a port for commerce on the Red Sea. And the commerce grew their economy and led to the construction of walls and towers and fortifications. All of this can be seen, described in detail in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 26. They, they looked powerful. They felt powerful. And while Judah was growing powerful, strong as a nation of men, they were withering as men of God. They were abandoning their convictions to come under God's law, and they were living lives uh, not faithful to his word and his truth, but instead they were living lives seeking to benefit and to glorify themselves. Their sin as a nation was epitomized by their king, uh, Uzziah. 
Second Chronicles 26, 16 says, but when he grew strong, he grew proud for he was unfaithful to the Lord. In Uzziah's pride, he entered the temple of the Lord and he sought to perform a role that God's law had appointed only for the priests of the temple. He attempted to burn incense on the altar. Seems like a small thing, but uh, it wasn't because it was something that God had said, you do this, you do this for my glory, and this is how you do it. A people in loving obedience do what God asks, but this is not what Uzziah did. He goes into the temple and he tries to uh, do it himself. Right? When, he, when he was prevented from doing this by the priests, he went into a rage. He became incredibly angry, and God immediately punishes King Uzziah with leprosy, and he ultimately died. Uzziah disregarded the reason for the procedures and the purposes for burning incense in the temple, and he just did what suited himself and his agenda and his pride. What he attempted to do was designed to honor God and was part of a system designed to set God's people apart from the world. An act that was meant to bring glory to God uh, and to be done as worship to God, uh, Uzziah attempted to use it to honor himself, right? He was motivated by his pride and blinded to God's law, God's truth. God's plan for his people to be a light to the world and the living embodiment of the character of God. He rejected God with his actions and he brought judgment upon himself. And he brought judgment upon the people of Judah who had also given themselves over to self-indulgent, self-sufficient lives and they had lost sight of who God had called them to be and even who God was. They knew God, okay? Uh, they had seen God deliver them throughout their history over and over again. Yet they were turning from truth. They were turning from the instruction that they knew and they were living idolatrous lives for themselves and their own glory. They were ignoring God's truth. In the absence of truth, lies flourish and sin reigns, Right? The people of Judah had placed their faith in a king, but it wasn't God. It was Uzziah. Uzziah had grown their nation into a powerful and prosperous one, but he had also led them in living their lives unto themselves and not to God for God's glory, even in performing sacrifices to God, in observing occasions like the new moon festival or even the Sabbath, things that are called and meant to bring God glory, uh, and praise, the people became focused on themselves even in doing these things. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, uh, we see the people carrying out these sacrifices and the, these observances, uh, and, and we see them doing them for themselves, do, going through the motions, not even really thinking about God and doing them. The one who appointed them was being ignored, right? And so God calls these offerings vain offerings in, in chapter one of Isaiah. He calls them an abomination to me. He says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God sees that while they perform these sacrifices and these observances, the things they're instructed to do by his law, uh, they're doing so with their hearts not in submission to God, but full of pride. They're doing it for their own glory, not for his. It, it's become about them. So God 
He's called them, in chapter 1, you see him say, I called you to bring justice to the fatherless. Take up the widow's cause, chapter, or verse 23 in chapter 1. Uh, he has called them to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, in, in verse 17. And they're not doing any of these things. So their sacrifices and their observances are worthless to God because their hearts are not submitted to him. They're not doing it for him. Their intentions are not aimed at the glory of the one true and living God. Now the king, Uzziah, is dead, judged by God. And in chapter six here, Isaiah, in a vision, comes face to face with the true king. He sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, verse one. Isaiah's understanding of what is right and what is power and what is worth following and living to is reoriented in this vision. For he sees the Lord who is above all things. He is high and exalted. He sees the Lord who is over all things, seated on a throne. And his perspective of truth changes. He sees what Judah and Uzziah had been ignoring in order to make it possible to live unto themselves, worshiping idols and living in sin. He sees the incredible and overwhelming glory of the one true and living God. He sees the nation, or he sees the train of his robe, God's robe, filling the temple right? This is a God so big and so glorious that the very hem of his robe fills the entirety of the heavenly temple. And in verse two, we see above him were seraphim. Seraphim are fiery angels, angels that are in in flames. And in scripture, fire is often used to represent God's presence, right? We see God in Exodus manifest himself to Moses in a burning bush, we see him guide the Israelites in a pillar of fire. In Leviticus 9, as Aaron and his sons are being ordained as priests, God consumes and accepts their offering uh, to him with fire. God uses fire to demonstrate his presence throughout scripture, but he also uses it to demonstrate his power and to execute punishment for sin. In Genesis 19, verse 23, we see God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. It says, the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. For their sin, God destroyed them with fire. Okay. When I was in Israel with Scott and Bob, we went to the Dead Sea. Has anybody been to the Dead Sea? This is a, the most desolate place I've ever been. There's nothing there. It's just dirt and sand. And even the Dead Sea is, is so full of salt that nothing lives in it. It's a dead sea, right? This, Scott was our master uh, tour guide. Uh, he knows way more than uh, what it seems like he should about Jerusalem for a 20-something guy. Uh, it was amazing all the things that he shared with us, but one of the things that he said was many people believe that Sodom and Gomorrah was uh, located near the Dead Sea. And so as I stood there and I kind of looked at this total desolation, it just brought this passage to life to think about uh, God's judgment, which was so complete. And I could envision this thing being completely wiped out with fire, right? 
in Isaiah, God declares Judah to be guilty of sin and even compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 1, verse 10. So Isaiah stands before God in this vision, knowing fully the significance of the flaming seraphim and the symbol of fire uh, representing God's glorious presence and ultimate power. And then he witnesses the humble worship of God by these heavenly creatures. Even the angels were submitted to this holy God. Verse three says each, or no, verse two continued, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their face. With two they covered their feet and with two they were flying. With two wings they averted their gaze so they didn't look directly upon the glory of the Lord. He's too glorious for even other heavenly beings to even look at. With two wings they covered their feet. In John MacArthur's commentary, he suggests that the covering of their feet indicates uh, an understanding of one's own lowliness in comparison to God. Even as you serve him, covering your feet symbolizes you are beneath him. It seems to say that we go in service not by our own power, but by his, for his sake, not ours. This worship of the angel stands in complete and total contrast to what Judah was doing uh, in doing the things God had required of them, but not doing it for his sake and his glory, but for themselves, right? They were just going through the motions. And with two wings, the seraphim, they fly in service of the Lord. With all six wings, they were worshiping and acknowledging the greatness of God. And they were calling to one another. Verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Three times the angels cry out, holy. God is completely separate from his fallen creation, whereas his people are wholly corrupt, WH. God is wholly perfect. Holy is repeated here to emphasize and amplify God's glory and perfection. The threefold repetition of the word holy is called a trihagian. Take that home and impress your friends. The trihagian praise of six-winged angels is echoed later in the Bible in Revelation chapter 4. It's an incredible scene of ceaseless worship and praise to the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In this scene, the redeemed kings of those saved from the judgment of sin because of their faithfulness in Christ, they throw down their crowns and they worship the eternal God saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the God before whom Isaiah stands in his vision. It is the holy, eternal creator of everyone and everything. And he is worthy of our honor and our praise. And without him, we wouldn't even exist. It is God to whom we owe our very lives. And Isaiah 6.3 refers to God as Lord Almighty. The ESV uses the name Lord of hosts. This is the name for God 
which refers to him as the God who commands armies of angels. Isaiah, seeing the God who is over all things and in command of all things, this is the almighty God whose glory fills the entire earth. We read in Romans 1.20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Isaiah is standing before God, and he's seeing beyond a shadow of a doubt and with absolute clarity the reality of the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. And he is recognizing that his life and the lives of the people of Judah are not glorifying this incredible God who is worthy of our praise And the reason that they have been living contrary to God's law is because their eyes have been closed to and turned away from the truth of God. This is a holy God, and he realizes as well that there is an insurmountable gulf between them. God sees it. Isaiah sees it. We are completely different and completely separated. In verse 4, it presents us with symbols of God's holiness and his wrath, really. It says, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook as the temple was filled with smoke. God recognizes the gulf between him and his people. He sees their rejection of him, their worship of idols, their penchant for self-glorification, as if... He is unworthy of our praise, as if he had created nothing and was over nothing, as if God were too small to be trusted with their lives, and God's angry. It is in verse 5 that Isaiah verbalizes his realization that he and the people of Judah have been living as though God was unworthy of their praise and their submission. They have been living as though the greatness and power, even the existence of God, was untrue. He realizes the lies that they have all bought into of the glory they could experience through worldly and sinful living simply by ignoring the truths of this holy and powerful and glorious God. And now, face to face with the truth of God and his eternal and glorious character, Isaiah is completely broken, and he expresses this brokenness by crying out, Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I am not worthy. John Oswalt, in the NIV application commentary, he suggests that Isaiah sees his situation as being so hopeless that he doesn't even bother to ask for deliverance or cleansing. He simply says, woe to me. This is not a casual phrase in scripture, okay? Isaiah didn't use it casually. It's used throughout scripture to communicate extreme hardship and distress. And here Isaiah expresses a clear understanding of his impending doom and judgment. He is ruined, he says. And his ruin has come to him because of his own sin, 
His rejection of God's holy ways, God's truth in favor of selfish, self-indulgent promises of personal glory that are proclaimed by the world around him, right? He's a man of unclean lips, it says. And, and we read in Luke 6.45, for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? He's, be- he's believed lies, he's lived according to those lies, and he's spoken lies in rejection of the truth of the Lord Almighty, in the absence of truth, lies flourish and sin has reigned. And upon realizing this, he confesses his sin and he recognizes that his own sin is echoed throughout Judah. Even their earthly king, Uzziah, completely unlike the seraphic choir that is singing the truth in their praise of the glorious perfection of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah and the people have been singing praises to themselves and the created world in their idolatry. I live among a people of unclean lips. All this is clear to Isaiah because he has now seen the truth of the true king, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Oswald suggests that Isaiah sees his situation as hopeless and unredeemable. Uh, Isaiah recognizes that neither he nor the people of Judah deserve anything from God because of their blatant rejection of him. He recognizes the truth that we read in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Isaiah knows he deserves death for his sin, But then comes verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips, his unclean lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. In Isaiah's brokenness, in his newfound clarity of the truth of who God is compared to who he is, in his recognition of the hopelessness of living according to the lies and the promises of the world and the flesh, Isaiah experiences the grace of this great and terrifying God. And I say terrifying because the vision to see the reality and the truth of God and his grandeur and to recognize the separateness, the difference between you and him would be terrifying when you don't know that grace is coming. God can't tolerate or ignore sin. He will judge sin. If you continue to read in Isaiah 6, down below verse 8, you, you read in 9 through 13 that God has a plan to judge the unfaithful Judah, like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And that plan is revealed, and Isaiah's role in delivering the message is revealed. His calling won't be pleasant. And in some ways, our calling as believers to follow him and take up his message, it's often not pleasant. But he sees this, and it is terrifying. But in verses 6 and 7, we see the amazing grace of God for the broken and contrite heart. We see the incredible truth that the fire of God isn't simply a fire that destroys completely, but it is a fire for the refinement and the purification 
of the broken. We see it in Zechariah 13 where God promises to put his people through the fire, not to destroy, but to refine them like silver and test them like gold. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3 where the quality of the works of a believer is revealed with fire, leaving only that which honors God. We see an angel of the Lord cleanse Isaiah's unclean lips with a burning coal from the altar. We see God graciously forgive a man who doesn't deserve his forgiveness. Isaiah is given the free gift of salvation, the same gift that is offered to the broken today that we see in the second half of Romans 3.23. And the fruit of this unexpected and unimaginable gift is a transformed heart. a heart so filled with thanks and love that when God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In verse 8, Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. In the absence of truth, lies flourish and sin reigns. But in the light of truth, sin is exposed Sinners are broken, and the broken are transformed. My friend Steve struggled with contentment and self-worth. He struggled to trust God with who he was and what he had to offer as a person, right? Steve worshipped the idol of accomplishment, maybe. If he could just be impressive enough, or have accomplished something amazing by worldly standards, then maybe then he'd have value. Rather than face the truth of his actual skiing ability, he avoided the truth to preserve the world that he created for his sake, for his personal glory. He chose to live in lies rather than be open to the truth. As I studied this week um, and last week and the week before that, I've been reading Isaiah for a while, uh, I couldn't help be convicted. And honestly, this is what happens when you sit before Scripture. Don't just read it, but when you sit before it, you read it and you dwell on it and you think about what it's saying to you, to you and your life and your context. It is impossible not to be convicted. Like Judah, the world's standards and the world's idols, have, they've seeped into my life. And they've impacted how I live and the decisions that I make. School started in August. And man, whenever we're in school, I always recognize the idol of achievement that creeps in to um, my fathering. Uh, I spent three years in um, school studying to better handle God's word, to to be able to bring a message in a way that was accurate. It's it's not easy. (laughs) But while I did it, it was so hard not to let it become an endeavor of of, uh, intellectualism, uh, an endeavor of academia. You, You find yourself more worried about the A than about what is actually happening to you and in you because of God's word. And you shut yourself off to it. And you, like, the, like Judah did, start doing things that are meant to honor God, but they become about you. And I got so focused on, on me and, and how I looked 
up here in how I uh, sounded and how well I presented God's word that, that it, it wasn't about him anymore. It was about me. It was about the performance that happens when you stand up here and preach. And it's something that I, every time I preach a sermon, it comes up because it's something that God has continually chipped away at my heart, trying to prepare me to do it for him, not for me, not to please someone with whom I've had a, an uncomfortable relationship with, somebody who has pointed something out in my life that, that is wrong or some point of disagreement. And I, and I found myself crafting sermons and messages because what I'm trying to do is please them, not preach a sermon that was meant for God. I think it's a battle that maybe uh, a lot of pastors face. Um, or maybe I just say that to make myself feel better. But uh, I, I, honestly, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle. And in my family life, I've found myself teaching my children the same message is that it's, it's about this achievement. It's about this grade. It's about uh, what people think of you, what kind of scholarships you'll be able to get, get this singing award, get this running medal, get whatever. Uh, you start getting so focused on maybe winning the basketball game that you forget to teach your kids to represent their heavenly father even while they're playing basketball, even while they're running, even while they're singing, that it's not about you. The awards may happen. You know, the achievements may happen. But the focus should be on God, not on achieving something, right? And what I found is that the, the, the achievement, the, the grasping and the reaching for this earthly reward becomes so great that my time is consumed. It's swallowed up by my desire to be somebody, to have value according to the world, that I, I totally forget who I am. And in those moments, it's like God doesn't exist. And you fall into sin. You fall into living according to these patterns of, of lies that you believe and buy into. And in order to, to maintain that, you, you stop going here because I think Judah knew I know this is going to convict me and call me out. And you get so comfortable in that fabricated world that has no eternal value. You avoid facing truth because you're comfortable. You're okay living in this lie. Isaiah was doing it. And here he faces the Lord God Almighty, a God that I hope we were able to see is above all things and in command of all things. This is the sovereign God. Sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. God's in charge. The incredible truth of this passage is that God has grace for the sinner who is broken and sees their sin for what it is. In the light of truth, sin is exposed and sinners are broken and the broken are transformed. God's word is truth. And his truth tells me that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The ESV it emphasizes that this is a free gift. 
It is given by the grace of God and not by our merit, as we saw happen with Isaiah. Forgiveness comes when we are broken of our sin and we have a heart to submit to God's truth and to live by it. God tells, God, God's truth tells us that when you put your faith in Jesus and you receive his forgiveness of sin, you have a new life. And with this new life, don't continue living in your sin as Judah was doing. Don't think that by doing your religious duties, attending church, taking communion, observing Lent, whatever, don't think that you're earning God's favor. These things are simply works outside of a broken and contrite heart that seeks to follow God out of, a, out of gratitude and of love because of his grace. 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us this, that Jesus, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Praise team, come on back up. I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, literally, I'm going to wrap it up. This isn't application, 30 more minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like Isaiah, we should experience God's grace. We should be broken of following our idols and trusting in the world to determine our value. And we should place ourselves before a mighty God and say, here I am, send me. Oswald writes in the NFV application commentary that it is foolish for us to think that we can somehow serve God until we have come to the end of ourselves. As long as we think that there is some hope of a human solution to our problems, there is little chance of genuinely seeing God. Nor is there hope for any of us becoming servants of the living God without there first being an adequate understanding of who he is. As long as I think I can solve my problems, with a little help from God, of course, then I am the sovereign and he is the servant. Being transformed by God's truth necessitates that we know God that we know him intimately, that we know the true proportion of God in relation to the true proportion of us, and that we submit ourselves to his truth, even when that truth is hard, knowing that he has already saved us from the punishment of death through our, through our faith in Jesus. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this is my charge to you this week. Search your hearts before God's word, before his truth. Meditate on what you read. Don't just read it and say, read my Bible today. Read it, dwell on it, and consider your idols. Consider the ways you have allowed yourself to conform to the worldly patterns of sin. Place yourself before God's truth. Spend time with him in his word. Know it. Know him and be transformed by it as Isaiah was transformed by it. In the absence of truth, lies flourish and sin reigns. But, 
And that is a but in all caps. In the light of truth, sin is exposed. Sinners are broken and the broken are transformed. Do I pray and then we... I'm going to pray. <clears throat> You'd think I'd know the, the order. <clears throat> when you're up here, it's totally different. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, would you just bring us to your word this week? Every time we find ourselves conforming to a worldly pattern and, and letting ourselves consider our fleshly desires and our fleshly concerns and we, and we let those crowd out time for God, time for his word, would you just convict us and drive us to the word? Drive us to the word. When we see a sin in our lives, drive us to the word to con- be convicting. Let it be a force in our lives. I just ask that you take this body this week and have them just constantly dwell on what God's word has said to them through Isaiah 6, through whatever other devotional they're doing. Let the word be meditated upon and become transforming in their walk. Please let this be a body that reflects your godly and holy character that allows the world to see the incredibly huge God we worship and not the small God that we make him when we turn him into a problem solver that we only need every once in a while. God, you are over all things. You are above all things. You are in charge of all things. Let us worship you like that all week, not just today, not just Wednesday night, all week, every day. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen.